Well, how are you guys? It's good to see you. Um, I hope you guys have been having a good week. I hope you grabbed a bulletin on your way in. I'll be referring to those. Before I uh, jump in all the way, just drawing your attention to the back of that bulletin, uh, one thing that we have tried to be really intentional about is creating opportunities for you guys outside of, um, I know especially this last year, I know a lot of people who their um, diet with regard to engagement with Christian community, scripture, whatever it may be, it was a little anemic. <laughs> and so we want to be really intentional about creating some opportunities where, where you can get together with other believers, grow and learn, be encouraged. So we have some Sunday morning, uh, what we call the equip or Sunday morning Bible study classes that either have just started, one started this last week on the Holy Land, and then we've got two others um, starting. And take a look at that information there. And then uh, just as a reminder, um, I'm going to be associated with one of those uh, classes. Dr. Jim Lindsay and I are going to be doing a May 2022 uh, trip to the Holy Land. And so be thinking about that. If you would like to join us, we would love to have you. It's a small group. We, we stick with about 20, low 20s people because that allows us to have certain experiences that, that larger groups don't. And um, we get to go with a scholar, Jim Lindsay, who's a Middle East history professor from CSU. So that's pretty rare as well. So we'd love for you guys to consider that. Maybe start uh, saving up and or you can come to the class and ask questions and would love to have you be a part of that. <clears throat> so we, we'd started a series, we're in week three, uh, called Sacred Pathways. And it's, it's, it's kind of a unique series in that what we're doing is we're, we're looking at nine different uh, ways in which people tend to historically, biblically, uh, based on just personality uh, traits, you might say, that, that people tend to have spiritual temperaments. And we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, saying we give a lot of time to, if, if you're in a workplace, you've probably done this, where you've, you've probably given a decent amount of time to the idea of like personality traits. What's your, uh, you know, what's your temperament? I, I mentioned week one. I remember the first one that I ever heard. It was sort of a silly one. It was the golden retriever, beaver, lion, otter thing. And they just sort of grow in complexity from there. But we do that. We study those. We think about them. We like them. We're intrigued because it's helpful for relationships that are horizontal. You know what I mean by that? It helps me know how I interact with you and how you best interact with me. It gives me an idea as to knowing, okay, if, there, if there's a problem, sometimes the message I'm sending isn't the message you're receiving, and it's because of personality temperaments and that sort of thing. And we give a lot of time to that, but we were saying one thing we don't often give a lot of time to is the vertical relationship that the thought that there's actually spiritual temperament. I have a spiritual temperament, not God. I mean, he, he's sort of fully, he's, he's fully orbed. <laughs> but he created me uniquely. Uh, we saw that in Psalm 139. And so just like a, a, a parent who would have multiple kids and would relate with each one of those kids differently, so God created you with a unique temperament, a spiritual temperament. And he, he likes your temperament. <laughs> he likes it because he put it there. And so he wants you to relate to him not like I do, or like that person does, or that person. He wants you to relate to him the way he made you. He made you unique in that way, like a thumbprint, a spiritual thumbprint. And so what we're doing is exploring these nine pathways to say, I wonder which one of these nine for me are, are more significant. Now, 
if I'm honest, I think we have all nine of these. I think all nine of these we engage in at some level or another. But some of them are just more prominent than others. And so we're going through this each week. Each week I'm uh, also giving you kind of an assessment. That's one of the things in your bulletin. So on your own, maybe you did it ahead of time, or you could go home and do it uh, at home. But it's six simple questions, and you, you sort of rate them on a zero to five, and then if, if that number's like 15 or above, it's like, that's probably a fairly prominent spiritual pathway for you. So hopefully this is, this is helpful as we go through it. And what I'm also encouraging us to do is not just view this as an interesting study, but to view this as something that launches you into exploration, that you would actually try some things. Uh, I, I got an email from a friend of mine, Bob, uh, this last week, who sent me a picture. Last week we talked about uh, the naturalist pathway, and I was talking about how for me, there's a certain spot, a certain time of the day, it's sunset, and the, when the sun's just hitting the clouds in a certain way, and Thursday night, he, he saw an image like that, and the sun was going down, and he took a picture, and, uh, and he emailed it to me, and he's like, man, I totally thought of this based on your description of last week, and he goes, you, that's absolutely nailing the exact same spiritual pathway as me. So I, I would love to hear from you even, like, like, what happens as you try? What happens as you maybe explore these different pathways? Do any of them just fall flat, and you're like, that was a dud? <laughs> or do you try, and you're like, that was actually kind of cool. I've never, I've never quite done that. Do you combine a couple of them and try a couple different ways? So, so I hope you'll do that. This week, um, we're looking at the contemplative pathway, the contemplative pathway. My first introduction to this, I grew up in a church tradition, which this was not a part of it. If you grew up in like an Eastern Orthodox tradition, oh man, you're really familiar with this. If you even grew up in maybe an Anglican or Catholic tradition, you might be a little familiar with this sort of take. I was not at all. I remember my first year at Denver Seminary doing my master's degree down at Denver, and when I started the program down there, they had this section called Christian Formation, and um, it was called uh, Mentoring and something else. It was this thing, and it wasn't a class, and I was confused. I'm like, wait, it's not a class we're taking, but of course I have to pay for it, but I'm like, what is, what is this thing over here? And they said, well, it's a, it's a mentoring and something section we're doing about you know, Christian formation, and I'm just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <clears throat> and, um, and they said, and so as I started having these conversations and these meetings and these groups, and they kept using this phrase, and I was so perplexed, because they're like, well, being is more important than doing. And I was like, being what? And they're like, well, you know, being that you're, I'm like, being, like, yeah, you know who you are. I'm like, I'm Brent. And, and, and I was just like, well, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Being is more important than doing. That's very abstract language for me, and I'm kind of concrete. But I remember that was this first introduction to this concept of being aware of being in the presence of God, just being with him as opposed to doing or thinking, all these other things. And it's, it, if I'm honest, it was always been hard for me to wrap my mind around it. Out of all these intellectual pathways, th this one isn't super high um, on, on the scale for me. But as I've leaned into it, and I, I've, it's, I've had some really rich experiences with it. The contemplative believer has a very emotionally laden relationship with God. Um, when, when the contemplative Christian, when their emotional heart like opens up and it feels really connected with God, that is worship. 
doesn't, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of activities with it. It's just the idea of being in the presence of God. So, you know, the intellectual pathway, this person wants to understand God. Um, the, the enthusiast pathway, man, I want to celebrate. I want to celebrate God. The, um, the contemplative pathway, that person says, I just want to be with, I just want to be with God, my beloved, and I am his. I just want to soak in God's presence. In fact, they will often use the language of my beloved. So the, the characteristic that maybe uh, marks the contemplative more than anything else is adoration. You know what that word means? I just want to adore God. I just want the experience of adoration in the presence of my God. Him loving me, me loving him. And one of the key foundational passages, and this is a biblical concept, this isn't just you know, being made up, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 33, verse 12. Let me read this for you. At the end of Moses' life, um, if you remember, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. He's staying up on the mountain. He, it says he gets to look into it because of his disobedience, and God buries him. And so he, he, he watches them walk into the promised land. But before they go, he gets all the tribes. He gets the 12 tribes, and he says, I'm going to pronounce a blessing over you, Benjamin, over you, and over you. And they're different because God has different plans for all of them. And this is the words that, that Moses delivers a blessing to the tribe of Benjamin. He says, of Benjamin, he, being Moses, said this, you're the beloved of Yahweh. And the contemplative hears that, and they just, oh, that feels good. You're the beloved of Yahweh, God. The beloved of Yahweh dwells in safety. The high God, or the most high God, surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. That's a beautiful picture. He dwells between his shoulders. The point is, this is a love-oriented relationship. Um, I remember another pastor hearing him tell this story of, of speaking about kind of this idea of a, what a contemplative is like, and he said there was always an image that he said he saw early on. He was uh, working in a church, and he was on staff there, and his kids, I know what this was like when my kids were real little on staff days and everything's going, they're always running around the church and getting into things, getting into trouble and that sort of thing, going behind the curtains they shouldn't be and all that. And he said, he was looking for his little girl, uh, uh, you know, she's an adult now, and he said, I was looking for, and I looked, and they had the offering plates stacked up, he said, and she was just sitting in, in the center of one of the offering plates in the back. And he was like, what are you doing? Get out of the offering plate. But he said, at that moment, God spoke to him and said, that's what I want of you. I want you to place yourself in the offer. I want you to offer yourself up to me. And he said, that, and that picture's always stuck in my mind. But see, that, that's what a contemplative wants. A contemplative says, I want to give my heart to God. Like, I want him to have my heart in his hands because it's this deeply intimate relationship. And when the old, in the Old Testament, anytime God ever explains the why of his commitment to Israel, this is the explanation he gives. Uh, we can read it here in um, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. He says this to Israel. It was not because you were uh, more in number than other people, 
that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the nations. Because remember, at Babel, he, he broke apart all the nations, disinherited them, and then, but then he picks out of the nations this one guy, Abram. He says, I picked you not because you're better, not because you're better looking, not because you're more interesting. I picked you because I love you. It's on the basis of love. It's because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand from Egypt, he's talking about, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He talks about this passionate love relationship between himself and his people. And it's interesting, anytime that, that God speaks of Israel's unfaithfulness, do you know what he goes to? He, he uses the imagery of adultery because he's saying, we're in like a marriage covenant. That's what Yahweh says to his people. We're in like a marriage covenant. There's intimacy, there's love, there's, there's fidelity, there's commitment. And so when they rebelled, you go way farther into Israel's future after the split of the northern and southern kingdoms and, and after they have been taken off into exile. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he uses these words right here. He says, the word of Yahweh came to me, Jeremiah, saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is the southern kingdom, I want them to hear this. Thus says Yahweh, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, that's when they were taken out of slavery, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh, that means like devoted, singular-minded him, the first fruits of his harvest. So God leans on, God comes up with this language of saying, I want my relationship with you to be, and again, a lot of us are uncomfortable with it because you're like, ugh, I just, you know, if this isn't really strongly your pathway, it might feel like that's a little bit too much like Jesus is my boyfriend kind of stuff. You know, I don't like that. I know, I know. But that's what God leans on to say, that's how absolutely committed and serious I am to the intimacy of our relationship with you. And so we're going to talk about this pathway specifically, especially if this is yours, we're going to talk about it and like how you can lean into it more and be better. At, but, but let me first come at this from a different direction, and here's why. Most time that I talk to people about this pathway, um, a lot of people kind of are like, well, that's not me, so I, they just kind of check out. They're like, you know, that's not my thing, that must be someone else's. For some reason, this pathway, I don't know why. People are oftentimes uncomfortable with it. So I want to talk first about um, a way in which, even if this isn't your top pathway, there will come season and seasons and moments in your life where you have to lean into this pathway. You will need to um, when we find ourselves in a desert, in a wilderness. Sometimes it's not until you're in the deepest, darkest place that you've been in a long time, it's not until you're in a very dry place, a very scary place, that you don't realize what I need more than solution and anything, I just need the presence of God. I just need to be with Him. Because that's what a contemplative wants. They just want to be with God. And if, if you don't learn how to lean into this when you're in that deep, dark place, you won't know how to say, God, I just need you. I don't, I don't need what you can give me. I just need you and your presence. Because again, a contemplative always thinks that. I just need you. <laughs> I just want you here. So let's take a look at 
one particular con- contemplative in Scripture, uh, King David. King David in Psalm 63. Psalm 63, we read, um, this is a time David was no uh, stranger to literal wilderness times. He was on the run many times from King Saul trying to take his life. He was on the run multiple times from one of his sons, Absalom, trying to take his life further in the future. So David had literal times in the desert, but those informed the rest of his life when he went through dry times when he went through difficulty in his life. And we read this. These are his words. David, who again, I would suggest was definitely um, in this pathway as well. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh is my, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He's comparing it to this fantastic meal, saying it's even better than a meal when you're hungry in a desert. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, so he's, he's not able to sleep even at night, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. So David's experience of being in the wilderness, it's not unique to him. Um, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Um, and, and, and Christians also find ourselves from time to time in that wilderness. Do you know what I mean by that? That, that wilderness experience in some season of your, of your life, and for a variety of reasons. Israel's reason for being in the wilderness was her sin. Um, David's reason for being in the wilderness was opposition from people who wanted to ruin him, who wanted to take him down. And, you know, who knows your reason for being, maybe, maybe you're in a season like that right now where you kind of feel like you're in a season of the wilderness. And that could be the loss of a loved one, uh, could be a broken relationship in your life, it could be a prolonged illness, um, or, or, or serious illness, or the loss of a job. But anytime that we're in a wilderness, we're, we're in a place where we experience isolation. That could be separation from loved ones, it could be separation from church community in our lives, from, from friends, even sometimes from God it's himself, it feels like. And we're not only isolated, but we also experience desolation. These are some words that are associated with wilderness living and desolation, words like joylessness, disconsolation, sorrow, confusion, loneliness, barrenness, lifelessness. And when we're in the wilderness, 
One thing that David realizes is every time you're, you're there, you're searching for something. You're looking for something when you're in a wilderness. And, um, you know, that could be security, it, it, it could be meaning, it could be significance, whatever it is. But what the psalmist says is that that might be on the surface of what you're looking for, the meaning, significance, security, whatever it might be. That might be on the surface, but that's not really what your soul, at a deep, deep level, what your soul is looking for. The point is, only God's presence can satisfy what's underneath the surface of what your true search is. And Psalm 63 is like a guide for you when you're in the seasons of searching and wilderness. In the search, it's interesting, you know, the language here, in verse one he says, oh God, it's a personal search. He's looking for the living and true God. He's not looking for philosophical ideas. He's not looking for an impersonal force. He's looking for a personal connection with God, the God whom we are supposed to correspond with in some way. We are God's imagers. And so David's saying, I'm looking for the one who I'm, I'm his image, I'm his representative. I have this correspondence with him. It's, it's reflected in the language of St. Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, God. That's sort of the state of our, of our hearts. Verse one, he also says, he says, oh God, my God, which is an interesting, he's, he, he's not just saying God, he's claiming possession, not in a way of you belong to me in the sense of I own you, but more in the sense of God, you, we're together, you're mine and I'm yours. He's claiming fidelity there. He longs to possess God and to be possessed by God. He longs to know God and to be known by God. He longs to love God and to be loved by God. He longs to be united with him. In verse one, it's also so intense that he says, um, I earnestly seek you. His point is, this search, it's not a casual one. It's not something that I'll get around to. <laughs> because he's been in the desert place, like a really difficult season, he knows that his need for God, it's not casual. It's necessary and it's constant. But sometimes we don't know that until we get to the desert place. And that's what I think this psalm reveals. You, whether this is your pathway or not, you need the presence of God. And you may not ever know that until you're in the desert place. And then it will be obvious to you. And then he likens the search for God like, like looking for water from a thirsty person who's, who's trekking through this parched, arid desert land. And the search is so intense that he says his whole being is caught up in it. And we're so occupied with the search that he says, I can't even sleep. I lay in my bed at night, and my first thoughts, I wake up, and my first thoughts, God, they go to you because I just need you at this season of time. Our soul is following hard after God. And then he says, and the, the only satisfaction he says, imagine you're in the desert and you're super hungry and there's this amazing, huge banquet feast. And he's like, that wouldn't even be as good as, as what I need right now in the desert season of my life. I just need God. I just need him here with me. That would be, um, and so essentially what, what David realizes through this psalm is that his priorities are reset. They're reset realizing that God's unfailing love was all that really mattered 
and it was more precious than any possible thing that he could be given or that he could pursue. And David was a contemplative. And I would suggest that David's psalm to us, the reader, is asking us this question, how much do you long for the presence of God? Whether it be that's your pathway or whether it be you're in a season where maybe you are more so, but it's a challenge to us. How much do you long for just to be with God? You know, um, are you so busy serving him? You know, maybe your, your, your pathway is the activist pathway. <laughs> I know a lot of people who are in that pathway. They love it, love serving God that way. Are you so busy serving him that you're, you've sort of forgotten the idea of just sitting at his feet, just being with God? Are you, are you so busy trying to understand him? Maybe you have the intellectual pathway that you're not just sometimes willing to just sit at his feet just to be, just to be, just to be in God's presence, to adore him. The contemplative pathway reminds us that God wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants to capture our hearts. And just like if you were with someone that you were just enraptured by, you just want to hang out in their presence. Even if you had a meal with them and you didn't even talk, that's fine. <laughs> There's just something about being close to them that you enjoy, that you drink in. So as we think about the marks of, uh, of a contemplative person, let me, let me give you two marks that are, are common for contemplative people, if this is your pathway. The first one is desire. One mark of, of a contemplative is desire. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, when, when he talked about desire in the human heart, he, he said something interesting, and, and this should make us think about, I don't have the immediate ability to, to up my love, <laughs> but he says there's something you can do to expand your capacity to desire, your capacity to love. He says this, contemplation, this is, it's, it's sort of packed, I'll go slow, contemplation, this idea of just being with, adoring God, it will be denied to a believer in proportion to the degree that they, be, uh, that they belong to the world. Like, you get what he's saying there? He's saying your capacity to love and to desire, it's limited, it's finite, it's like this big, whatever. And to the degree that your little love vault <laughs> is filled with attachments to, to things either in an inordinate degree or things you ought not be attached to, you don't have capacity to desire God. So one of the things that con a contemplatives talk a lot about is this idea of I need to detach myself from those things which are taking up space in my desire vault for God and saying I know there are many things that are there. And so that's why when David says in, in Psalm 139, he says, God, search me and know me. What he's saying is, look at, look at, that, look at those places. Is there anywhere in my life that, that uh, it's filled up and I don't have capacity for you because I've got something else in there and I just don't even have capacity for the desire. And, but, but that heart is so important. You're desiring. That's why the um, the author of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart, your, your little capacity section. Why is that? For everything you do flows from it. 
That's where all your desires are. What do you really want? And everything you do comes out of what it is that you really want. What do you really desire? Because you're going to go after that. <laughs> and so the author says, Man, guard that, you guys. Be, be vigilant about that part of your life. Because out of that, everything is going to come. If you remember, Jesus echoed these words. He says, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. He says, it is, it is out of those deep places in your life, that vault that, that desires, that has capacity to desire. He says, out of that comes all kinds of evil things in people's life. That's the place. That's why the author says, man, guard that. Be really careful of what you allow your, desire, your, your life to begin desiring. I remember it was... Um, Dallas Willard, who would say, <clears throat> you, you pick up desires um, as you go throughout your day like a wool coat picks up lint. And I thought that was such a vivid picture. I was like, well, that's a weird picture. But I get it. You know how a lint coat, you walk by something and you brush up against it, and it's on there, right? And he's saying, that's how you are as you walk throughout your day. Your little vault, <laughs> it's picking up things to desire, things that you should love, things that you should want. And to the degree that it's filled without God, you won't be able to desire Him. You won't be able to want Him. You won't be able to say, I just want to be with Him. And so the contemplatives remind us of that thing. And they say, how's the vault of your heart? What's it filled with? What are you picking up as you go throughout your day? So one of the marks of the contemplative, it's desire and thinking about how desire works. The other one is relationship. The second mark of a contemplative is relationships. That's what the contemplatives are focusing on. They take these words of Jesus really seriously. He says, no longer do I call you servants. This is John 15, 13. For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you you. See, the contemplative, it's interesting, there's, what, there's one practice within, within the contemplative. I remember when I first read this, I was like, that's, like, I feel uncomfortable with that, but some people might not, but it's, it's the idea of holding, holding hands with God and praying. And again, I'm just sort of like, it, it sounds weird to me. But to the contemplative, that speaks of this friendship thing. That's what friends would do. They would be close to each other. They would touch one another. And so my relationship with God, they would say, has to involve this closeness, this, this, this connection as we do this. And so let me, let me talk to you about some, and I'm going to give you some examples, and these, these are things you can try this week, but these are common um, acts or behaviors of contemplatives. The first one is what's called the Jesus Prayer. The Jesus Prayer. Now, historically, this has been used in the church. Um, you'll find various forms of it, but the most popular form of it goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the idea was, the Jesus Prayer is that a person would recite this regularly. <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, sometimes there was even a shorter version of it used by one fifth-century monk who said, come to my aid, God, Lord, make haste to help me. And the idea is that you memorize it and you say it throughout your day. 
And it's, it's not a mantra. There's nothing magical about it. It's the idea that it's, it's rewiring your mind, because this is one of the most important things about a contemplative. <clears throat> Think about this. How, how, uh, how many hours, how many minutes can you go in your day and never think about the fact that God is right there in your presence by His Spirit? I can go hours. <laughs> and it, it just doesn't cross my mind. I'm not trying to neglect it. I'm just thinking of other things. The contemplative says, your goal and my goal should be to what they call practice the presence of God. And you might be like, what in the world does that mean? It means you practice, you learn the idea that God's present, I mean, it is always here. The Spirit is always with us, walking beside us, inside of us. But I just forget it. I just got other stuff going on. I'm not thinking about it. So the contemplative says, but your whole life will begin to change the more you become conscious or cognizant, aware that he's constantly with you. And so the Jesus prayer, saying it repeatedly, it's, it's just calling my mind back to you. It's like it floats over here and it's calling it back and saying, and then during the day my thoughts float over here and I, I just keep calling it back to say, oh yes, that's what's going on. So the, the purpose of the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, it's just to practice the presence of God and to remind myself of these basic truths that Jesus is Lord, He's the Son of God. Asking for mercy, it's putting myself in a place of humility um, and recognition that I'm a sinner, I'm broken, and I need Him. And it's just that continual reminder. So again, the main focus of that Jesus, it's just to help me to remember God, recognize or remember that my mind drifts really easily. And the Jesus prayer, it's, it's a humble call of reliance on Him. Um, there's also another thing that, that's done among a lot of contemplatives, and this is something that I would encourage you to maybe try, is what's called um, secret acts of devotion. Secret acts of devotion. One, uh, the, the author of the book that we're kind of launching off of, he, he tells one story. He says, when I was in college, um, he said, I got up real early, like middle of the night one day, and you know, he said, I was like a college student, went outside, he said, it wasn't to you know, teepee someone's house or anything, what most college students do when they go out at midnight or whatever, but he says, it was, it was to do a secret um, uh, mission for God or a secret act of devotion. He said, we had had some neighbors, and uh, because of a, of a split in, in the family, it was a single mom and a few kids, and they were on a very difficult, hard times, and it was, um, I think it was Christmas, Christmas Eve, and he said, and I'd, I'd, I'd gone out and bought a big ham the day before, and I put it in the fridge, and I went and I put it on their step, and I, and I wrote on it, Merry Christmas, you're loved, and he said, it was a secret act, no one knew about it. In fact, the book, he says, I guess I don't get credit for it, because this is the first time I've ever talked about it, it's been like, you know, 30-some years, but he did this, and th- the whole point of a secret um, act of, of devotion, or engaging this, is that it's giving a gift anonymously, helping someone behind the scenes, um, maybe it's sending a card, but without anyone, even the person you're giving it to, knowing. Why is that? Because then I can be sure I'm doing it not for any recognition or adoration. I'm doing it as a love act to God. God, I'm doing this for you. Not not to earn anything. I'm doing it because I want to do something something secret that's just between you and me. That's what, that's what really good, like, that's what lovers talk about, right? This is a secret between us. They, they have secrets that they never tell 
anybody else. And that importance of secrecy, again, it ensures that you're doing it for the love of God and only the love of God and not for any other reason. And see, part of the intimacy that we share with God is secrets. And if you're contemplative, that's a big part of your spiritual life is that I have this secret relationship with God, secret elements to it. Not that it's like I don't talk about it with anyone. No one knows I'm an undercover Christian. (laughs) Not that. But there are elements of my relationship with God no one knows about. And to a contemplative, that's really special. It's beautiful. In fact, let me give you a couple ideas of things that could be done. Giving an anonymous gift of cash to someone in need. Crafting a poem or letter written to God and then burning it. Singing a particular song only when you're alone in the presence of God. Going on a secret walk or a night vigil just in the presence of God and just contemplating maybe completely silently. Establishing a secret devotional place where you frequently go to meet God. Engaging in intensive incessory prayer and fasting just between you and God. Making a vow to give up something either permanently or for a period of time to signify how your most important needs are met by God and not those things. Working behind the scenes to help an unemployed person get a job, but they never know or find out that you had anything to do with it. Sending an anonymous note of encouragement to someone in your life. He says, planting a tree or sowing a wildflower seeds in a field to celebrate God as creator. No one knows that you did it. It's just something between you and God. And the last one, this is, this is my favorite one, adopting a symbol of your love for God, which you will carry in your pocket or maybe wear as a necklace on your ring, um, around your neck. It's, it's something you do. I thought of kind of one example. I, I know I've been telling you this story like over and over and you're probably sick of it, but I dropped my son off at school. It's been very hard for me the past couple of weeks. So I was in his room the other day going, not like digging through stuff, not like in a weird way, but I was in his room cleaning up some stuff and I found one of these little silicone, you know, bands. You know what those are? You know, they have them for different things. And uh, it, it, it just has this school thing on there. And I put it on and it's just all day long, I just, no one knows, I'm, no one really asks, but all day long I see it and I'm just like, I've got my three kids with me at home, but there's one I don't have with me. And it just, I just think about him. Sometimes I pray for him but I just like thinking. It's a reminder. It's something that no one knows. So maybe it's something you have. Maybe it's a necklace you have, and it's, and, and it's in your shirt. No one even sees it, but you feel it. And it's, it's something special that just reminds you, oh yeah, my God, he loves me. I'm his beloved. It's some secret act that is helping you practice the presence of God. That's leaning into the contemplative pathway. And with practice, you'll even think of other secret things to do, other things that you can do, and it's just between you and your God. No one knows about it, but it's an act of devotion to Him. There's there's another thing uh, that contemplatives talk about called dancing prayer. When I first heard it, I was like, that sounds weird. I am not a dancer. doesn't involve any actual dancing. It's the idea of, think of ballroom dancing, and there's a man and a woman, and the man leads, and the woman follows. The woman is responding to the man's movement. And the idea that the contemplatives, the mystics talk about is when you pray, what if you were to think about God as the, as, as the man ballroom dancer and you're responding to him? And you say, what does that mean? Well, oftentimes when we come down and sit down and pray, I've got the agenda when I show up. 
Here's what we're praying about. <laughs> what if I show up with a blank piece of paper and I just go, God, what do you want me to pray about? You ever done that? I haven't done that a whole lot. Um, he might lead you to confession. He might lead you to uh, adoration. He, he, he might lead you to praise. He might, he might lead you to intercession for someone in particular that, that you weren't even thinking about. Who knows? But it's the idea of just letting, of sitting in his presence, sitting before him and saying, I want you to uh, kind of establish the agenda of what, maybe he just wants to, I just want you to be with me. You're so busy, Brent, doing 10 things. I just want you to sit with me for a little bit. I don't want you to do or think about much at all except us. And for me, I'd be like, what next? (laughs) But that's the push of the have this role. There's another thing called centering prayer. Um, centering prayer is, is the idea that I pick a word. It might be Jesus. It might be the Trinity. It might be the Father. It might be His love. And I just focus on that. And it doesn't feel very productive. But what it shows you is how quickly your mind is looking for other stimuli. <laughs> and then whenever I realize that my mind goes off, I just say in my heart that one word, Jesus is love and it brings me back, and, I, and it's just helping me to sit in his presence, to be with him and not to do anything. And again, it's very, this is very weird for us Westerners. It's so foreign to us. We're not used to this. The Eastern church, Eastern Christian church, uh, Eastern Orthodox, I mean, like this is a big part of their life. The Western church, it's just sort of a neglected practice, so it's very challenging for us to even think about what would that look like in our lives. There's the stations of the cross, meditating on the stations of the cross. This is just calling to mind the stations of the cross as uh, has been, you know, popular method of contemplation, where Christians simply pray through the various events, starting with the Garden of Gethsemane and then going to uh, the sentence of death given to Jesus, Jesus receiving his cross, Jesus falling, Simon helping Jesus carry the cross, Jesus falling a second time, the women mourning for Jesus, Jesus falling again, Jesus being stripped of his clothing, Jesus being nailed to the cross, Jesus calling out to Mary, his mother, and John, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus being taken down from the cross, Jesus being laid in the tomb. And as you experience each one of those stations of the cross at each point you pause and you just picture what's going on in scripture in your mind and you ask questions you know what what was going on at that moment it's it's just contemplation what what was happening um what can you learn from jesus's sacrifice and obedience and there's no set prayers for each one of those things so you just again it's that dancing you let the holy spirit lead you in your prayers, praying through those stations. It'll give your contemplative prayers concrete structures. So this one has a little bit more structure to it, which some of you are like, I need structure. I'm, I'm you know, if you're the traditionalist pathway, you love structure. <laughs> and this sort of thing is really like challenging for you. And there's meditative prayers. You don't have time. You can look that one up. But let me, let me just mention some of the temptations or challenges or dangers for contemplatives. Each week I've been saying, I'm going to mention the ways that they engage, but also 
Each one of these pathways kind of has, has a way in which, ah, you could get a little off. <laughs> this could be a little bit of a danger <clears throat> for you. The first one is losing balance. Um, and what I mean by that is, oftentimes contemplatives will say, well, um, they sort of have a sacred-secular distinction. My relationship with God is, is sacred, and my private time alone with Him is sacred. But um, going to my small group, that's kind of secular. Or having a friend, having lunch with him, that's kind of secular. So, so relationships, I can't really connect with God there. I can only connect with God when I'm alone and, you know, in this you know, contemplative mode. And, and, and it's throwing out the idea that, you know what, maybe God's going to use that person. Maybe you're going to meet Jesus through the hands and feet of that particular person in your life. So the, the idea that God wants you to delight in him, but also in the good things he's made differently, but in those things as well. Um, I think another potential danger is absorbing the ego into God. Um, some forms of contemplation wander from Orthodox Christianity, and any, any form of meditation that calls your ego to be like absorbed into God rather than encouraging us to relate to God that's falling into more of an Eastern pantheistic concept where I'm, I'm seeking union with God or absorption into God. Um, God is God. We are human and never the twain shall meet. There's a, the, there's a category distinction. We, we want relationship, but there's a distinction. Um, going, that, going too far, that's, that's really getting into Hinduism and that sort of thing where, where, where I lose individuality and I'm absorbed into that. Another danger is the idea of emptying oneself completely. Um, oftentimes, you know, both Christians and, say, like Eastern pantheists use the word meditation. We mean very different things. Here's the difference. When an Eastern pantheist says meditation, um, they mean emptying my mind. When a Christian, historical Christian, uses meditation, they mean filling my mind. Does that make sense? They're radically different things. In fact, Jesus had a very interesting uh, warning about the idea of creating a vacuum in that soul of yours. If you remember, he, he told the story one time. He says, there was a man who was possessed by a demon, and it was cast out of him, but he said, but he remained empty, which is to say nothing filled that. The Spirit, God didn't fill it. And he said, and a legion of demons came back, and it was worse than it was before. Our goal as Christians is not to empty ourselves. It's to fill ourselves with the person of Jesus. And then uh, one of the f final couple ones here is getting, getting addicted to spiritual experiences. There is such a thing as um, spiritual gluttony <laughs> for the contemplative. And what I mean is this, the contemplative loves to feel, right? I do too, I love to feel. But when that becomes so important that you think, well, if I'm not feeling God, something's wrong, and you start searching after the feelings, pretty soon you're, you're, you're pursuing the feeling more than the person of God, if that makes sense. And the realization that the contemplative, if this is real strong in yours, you're going to have to mature and progress to the place where you realize, I'm going to have seasons where feelings are not there a whole lot. And I have to have that maturity and Christian discipleship and discipline to say, I, I know these things are still true even when the feelings aren't there because those times and those seasons will come. It's what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. You'll have times where the feelings will be radically absent, and if you're not anchored 
into God, into the person of God, and familiar with his scripture, empowered by his spirit, imaging Jesus, then those would be the times in which you'll, you'll lose buoyancy and you will absolutely drift away. So if you have the kind of relationship with the Lord where it's really important for your heart to be fully engaged, you, um, you want to be contemplative on the things of God. Lean into that. Pursue that. Learn from, from people like Teresa of Avila. Um, go, go after people like Augustine. Read his meditations and his reflections, because these were people who were contemplatives, but deeply grounded to Scripture and to community around them. You just want to rest in his presence, and that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. God longs for that from all of us. I mentioned earlier that one of, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to have something on me that reminds me of something. Um, I want to make available to you guys tonight, if you'd like one, if you, don't, if you wouldn't like one, that's fine. You don't, you don't need to take one. But this is, um, this is a prayer coin, and it's really beautiful. And what this is, is this is one of, people have, oftentimes are called challenge coins, and people keep them with them for different reasons. This isn't anything like that. This is a secret private thing, just between you and your God. If you don't have anything like that, maybe it's that necklace that you drop in your shirt, or that wristband you put on, or who knows. I would encourage you to take one of these and, and just put it in your pocket. Every time you reach down to grab the keys, to open the door, unlock the car, or pick, grab the phone, and your finger brushes against this, it's a reminder of the presence of God. Oh, yeah, he's with me. Oh, yeah, he loves me. Oh, yeah, I'm the beloved. Every time you, you pick it up, you see it, your hand rubs against it, remind yourself you're the beloved. Because that's a beautiful thing, and that's what you and I need more than anything else all throughout our day. So if you would like one of these, after we take communion here in a moment, there's a box over here and a box over there. Feel free to come up, grab one. Again, I would love for you to, if that would be something that would be useful, give it a try. If not, don't use it. <laughs> Explore. That's what we're doing in this series. What I want to do over these next few minutes is um, go to the the tables that have communion, the bread, Christ's body, the cup, his blood shed for us. And this is a moment that I would say, um, take this, just you and God. This is, a, this is a, kind of a secret moment. People know you're doing it. That's okay. It's a secret moment between you and God. And just listen to see what he might say to you. Once you've taken it, you take it on your own, then I encourage you to stand up and let's sing this song out, okay? Okay.